Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. The term The Great Reset is starting to be used frequently around the world. And to get an idea of what this is, we need to start with maybe a dictionary definition, because this gives the clue. It says, this is what a reset is. To turn a piece of computer equipment off and then on again when it does not work correctly to make it start working correctly again. Now, we've all done this umpteen times. Your modem doesn't work properly, so you switch it off, wait 10 seconds, switch it back on again, and hopefully it resets and works again. So when something's not working correctly, we reset it by switching it off in order that when we switch it back on again, it will work correctly. Now, right at the beginning of this truth talk, I need to make an important disclaimer. It's this. I'm a theologian, and I'm neither an economist nor a political scientist. But I have to start this talk with a fair amount of both politics and economics in order to present what I believe to be important truths for Christians. Let's start with the political-social aspects of the Great Reset. Now, the ideas and plans that fall under the Reset label, the Great Reset, are in fact complex and convoluted. And I know I'm running the risk of oversimplification, but here are what I see to be the the three main components of it. One, a reset of economic policies and structures. Two, a reset of money resources to create new systems. And three, a reset of health and social approaches to global challenges through the use of new technologies and global cooperation. The aim of the Great Reset is in fact globalization and socialism on a grand scale. And the catalyst used to kick it all off is the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, the key ideas presented by proponents of this Great Reset are as follows. One, that changed mindsets are required. Changed mindsets to such things as, well, you know what, capitalism actually leads to inequality, therefore it's not a good thing. A change to the idea that the free market will provide for all is actually a myth. Actually, socialism leads to equality, it is said. And central government is the thing that will provide for all of us. Secondly, the creation of new metrics that measure what matters. So, for instance, it's contended that the GDP, the gross domestic product, actually measures the wrong things because it is a measurement of wealth that actually ignores the distribution of wealth, the social benefit of wealth, and the environmental impact and social health of wealth. So they say we're measuring the wrong things, we must change the way we measure, change the metrics. Thirdly, the design of new incentives leading to a new vision of all corporations and all governments to promote an economy that serves all people. In other words, let's incentivize the leaders of industry and commerce and government so that they get benefit from doing the right thing. And lastly, a construction of genuine connections between people and nature. 
Now, you know, a lot of this, while it's quite ambiguous and broad, it sounds pretty fair and reasonable, doesn't it? Equal opportunity for the underprivileged? Good. Rulers that are rewarded for genuinely serving? Yeah, great. All nations and all national leaders being accountable for combating the destructive consequences of global warming? First class. However, it is when we consider many of the proposed means of bringing all these things about that matters get problematic. You see, these means that are promoted and proposed include things like the legislated and enforced imposition of socialistic government policies. Let's, let's pass laws, they say. Let's legislate that these principles are mandatory. These ideas are legally binding. Things such as a wealth tax, a, a Green New Deal for state programs, and some kind of Orwellian surveillance and control of the population, and so on. In essence, the key concept behind the key doctrines and applications of the Great Reset is a 21st century form of radical socialism. Right, well, we have to answer the question, what is socialism? Actually, the word socialism is seldom used in first world countries in our day. And politicians and others favor the label progressive liberalism. If you're somebody in leadership, are you a socialist? They'll probably say, no, no, I'm actually a, a progressive liberal. But in essence, the two terms encompass the same range of ideologies. And it's not actually easy for anyone to provide one generally accepted definition of socialism. But the following will have to do. Socialism is a system in which, through a democratic form of government, every person in the community has an equal share and ownership of the various elements of production. Ah, okay, fair enough so far. Socialism, as opposed to fascism, is implemented through democratically elected governments. Good. However, to implement socialistic reform, these elected governments need to control and centralize. Here comes the problem. They are elected democratically, but then they control and they centralize government. Radical socialism or progressive liberalism, whatever you want to call it, by its very nature is in many ways the antithesis of free market capitalism. Now, a reasonable definition of capitalism could be as follows. Capitalism is an economic system in which all or most of the means of production are privately owned and operated, and the investment of capital in the production, distribution, and prices of goods and services are determined mainly in a free market rather than by the state. Yeah, that, that's free market capitalism. So maybe to better understand the 21st century version of socialism, let's take the definition I've just given of capitalism and reverse it. Because the two really are opposed. Then we would come up with something like this. Socialism is an economic system in which all or most of the means of production are owned and operated by the state, rather than privately. And the investment of capital and the production, distribution, and prices of goods and services are determined mainly by the state, 
rather than the free market. Okay, so then it's no wonder then that Mr. Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, the actual man who coined the phrase, the Great Reset, wrote the following. Listen carefully to what he wrote. He wrote, To achieve a better outcome, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies, from education to social contracts and working conditions. Every country, from the United States to China, must participate, and every industry, from oil and gas to tech, must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. There you have it. Underpinning much of what passes today as socialism is what used to be called something like cultural Marxism, a word that you don't hear people owning up to much. Now, this political and social ideology promotes the, the idea that the old must be destroyed in order to build the new. That's a key idea behind this whole Great Reset. As I mentioned right at the beginning, you've got to switch off before you can switch on. That's the idea. So when people speak of systemic problems such as racism needing to be eradicated, what they are actually saying is that the old systems and institutions must be destroyed, often violently, before the new can be established. In the United States of America, President Trump contends that the Washington political swamp must be drained, while his opponents claim that systemic racism, gender prejudice and so on must be eradica eradicated. Actually, both are expressions of the idea that the old must be destroyed in order to build the new. Now, more specifically, the cultural Marxism of our day is targeting such things as gender assigned at birth. Now, what I mean by that is when a child's gender is determined at birth by their genital attributes, so a, a little boy is born a boy because he has male genitalia, they oppose that and saying, no, no, that's not the definition. Gender should not be assigned at birth. It should be the choice at any point of that child further down the line. Marriage and the nuclear family is being challenged. They don't want marriage. They don't support marriage. They don't support the nuclear family of a husband, a wife and children. Capitalistic economic dominance has got to be attacked and eradicated, etc. Now, some of these issues are openly embraced by political parties such as the Democrats, much of the Democratic Party in the United States, but they often fly under the false flags of organizations such as Black Lives Matter. Now on the surface, something like Black Lives Matter claims to be an organization that is trying to uphold the basic rights and privileges of black folk, and that's good, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's a false flag. What they are actually interested in is cultural Marxism, the Great Reset. Radical and often violent overthrow in order to build something which they believe is better. Now, let's talk about our own country here in South Africa, my own country. Marxist-flavored socialism is promoted in various degrees of radicalism by the African National Congress, the ANC, the Communist Party, 
and the EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters. However, the socialism that the Great Reset seeks to unleash is not limited to the United States or to the RSA, the Republic of South Africa. It's actually global. So now, let's have a look at globalism. Nationalism, which is the opposite, I guess, of globalism, nationalism champions national sovereignty, self-governance of countries, and the belief that government should be limited and localized rather than global and centralized. Globalism, on the other hand, is a liberal and authoritarian desire for some form and degree of one world government, which minimizes national sovereignty and self-governance. It favors, amongst other things, open borders, free trade zones, interventionism, and extensive foreign aid in order to achieve the globalization of all the nations of the world. So, what the advocates of the Great Reset seek to bring about are globalism and radical socialism. The two go hand in hand. Radical socialism across the globe is another way to express that. But look, just a, a word of warning. Not everything is either entirely good or entirely bad. And you know, most of us tend to paint everything as either black or white. We paint people as either good or bad. However, not every idea espoused by socialism is actually bad. And not every idea promoted by capitalism is actually good. Not all socialists are bad people. And not all nationalist capitalists are good people. And obviously, the converse also applies. Also, people can have affiliations, policies and practices that you or I might find to be bad. We might judge them to be bad. But they, the folk who hold these views, would claim that their motives actually are good, and that the ideas are for the benefit of mankind. For instance, it's really hard to argue that capitalism does not foster some kind of financial inequality in some form or other. Yeah, it does, and it's one of the weaknesses of capitalism. It's hard to argue against the fact that state-sponsored social aid is necessary at times, particularly in third world countries. It's hard to argue that environmental activism is surely needed to some extent to prevent global catastrophe and international cooperation is vital when combating such things as the pandemic that we're currently in. You know, there's a, a continuum of views, convictions and motivations in the political spectrum and there are very few forms of pure capitalism or pure socialism in existence today. However, politics and economics are important and life-affecting, so it's equally important for us to understand something of the political and economic issues in the world in which we live. Moreover, the ideologies and movements that fly under the flag of the Great Reset have a huge potential impact for Christians in general, and the Church in particular. <laughs> you know, when I was a young man, I heard it said so many times, you know, there are two things a pastor should not preach about. They must be kept out of the pulpit. And that is politics and money. Well, I guess that was good advice if they were referring to party politics, you know, pushing one particular political party, or 
money squeezing manipulations to try and get deep into the pockets of the congregants. Those are wrong. But to avoid the bigger and broader subjects of politics and economics is surely to present the gospel in a wholly unnatural vacuum. Now, what's at stake in all these things? What's at stake in the Great Reset? Well, radical socialism, or social Marxism, call it what you will, is profoundly humanistic, and it is at best agnostic, but is more often blatantly atheistic, anti-God. Some politicians and political movements profess a form of Christianity, but you know when you examine it, it usually proves itself to be some mildly religious and certainly not biblical Jesus-centered or Bible-believing form of Christianity. In Matthew 12:13, Jesus made the statement that a tree is known by its fruit, and a social ideology is known by its objectives and its programs. So just consider for a moment the fruit of what I've called the Great Reset. Here are some of the fruit. A strong prejudice against the Christian Church and its members, including taxing churches, legislating against churches, preventing the right to gather, trying to state-control churches. I mean, just have a look at what's happening in China if you want a picture of strong prejudice against the Christian Church. Secondly, anti-family legislation and some initiatives such as same-sex unions, abortion on demand, gender identity rights of minor children and so on. Maybe I need to explain just a little bit. Same-sex unions, I personally don't have a huge problem of with if it's only a legal issue to try and ascertain the will of people and their contractual capacities, etc. But if it's now been brought in to be included in the sacred definition of marriage, then it's flying against the Christian ethos and the biblical belief. The abortion on demand, well, you know, there might be some arguments about abortion required in some instances, but abortion on demand means that a woman at any stage, and I mean any stage in the nine-month gestation period, can present herself to the clinic and have that child killed. And the identity rights of minor children essentially say the parents have no say in what happens with the child. And if that child is born a boy, then a boy, he should stay. But what is now being saying, no, 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 that's not true. The parents have no say in this matter. If that child at any stage, maybe as a 13-year-old or even younger, should decide that they might feel more feminine, then they have the right to reassign their gender as female. Thirdly, aggressive anti-law and order behavior. And this ranges from disrespect for police officers and courts of law to actual armed civilian control of parts of cities, which we've seen in the United States. Disregard for legal regula regulations concerning things like uh, demonstrations and rallies and so on. Wanton violence against people and property. Then there is freedom of expression withheld from righteous people, but used with absolute impunity to serve the cause of the societal disruption which they want to bring about. Then there's the massive distortion of truth. This has been so disturbing of late. 
There is the unabashed proliferation of fake news, blatant manipulation of statistics and data, and a lot of hate speech, a lot of hateful rhetoric. Then the de-Christianizing of school curricula. We're seeing that in our, our, our country as well. The de-Christianizing of government traditions and national constitutions and so on. Then there's the centralization and ownership of property and the means of production by the state and the resultant defranchisement of entrepreneurs and innovators. Gun control for responsible citizens is strictly adhered to while the criminals run around with whatever guns they want. Open borders, uncontrolled people movements across the globe. Executive powers confirmed on state institutions and world organizations at the expense of local and national citizens. The state ownership of land, of the reserve bank, of electricity and water provisions, of education, of transport and mineral resources are all expressions of social Marxism. The economic and social discrimination against minority, ethnic and religious groups and so on and so forth and the list is actually quite endless. So in short guys, we are likely to experience under secular Marxism, we'll call it radical socialism, at first we'll see maybe an erosion of all these things but then ultimately a denial and a suppression of Christian Judeo beliefs, values, freedoms and rights. That's where it's heading. But you know there's a third way. It doesn't have to be capitalism or radical Marxism. There is a third way. Nationalistic capitalism has its failings and global socialism has serious implications and problems. But there's a third form of world and national order that is largely ignored by the leaders of nations, and that is the kingdom of God. You know, when challenged by the Roman authority of his day, the Lord Jesus said this, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. And concerning the way believers are to counter the assault of the world system on the church, the Apostle Paul wrote, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Peter too addressed in his letters, and you'll find this in 1 and 2 Peter, he addressed the letters as follows, to God's elect strangers in the world, and he urged them to live as aliens and strangers in the world. Now this alternative kingdom was inaugurated when Jesus was born into the world, and it will continue until he comes again in glory. Its values and laws are the opposite of godless socialism and the opposite of greedy capitalism. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and his kingdom is everlasting and his dominion endures through all generations. Everyone who is born again of the Spirit of God is a member of this kingdom with dual yet subordinate citizenship in an earthly nation. We live in the world, but we are not of the world. Now, I know the world often seems to be a circus with the clouds, clowns running the show, right? And we live in this jolly circus. Well, we might be walking ankle deep through elephant doo-doo, 
we might be dodging mad clowns and sometimes desperately trying to find the exit, but we cannot avoid being in the circus. The only way we can make sense of our sojourn through this insanity is to hold fast to the values of our King and to strive to influence our physical world with His ways and His gospel. So, the Great Reset needs to be seen in a bigger context. The Great Reset that the World Economic Forum promotes is not THE Reset. And it's not great at all. You know, eons ago, when human iniquity had become intolerable, God reset the physical world, and the instrument he used to do this was called the Great Flood, right? Then thousands of years later, he reset the world spiritually by coming personally as Jesus Christ of Nazareth, dying to atone for the rebellion of mankind, and rising from the dead so that all who choose to can be born again to the Spirit and of the Spirit into eternal life. And God has a third and final great reset planned. It goes by several names, but it most often is referred to as the great and awesome day of the Lord. Let me read what Malachi, the Old Testament prophet, wrote in, in sorry, well not Malachi, well, Zephaniah wrote in chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. He wrote this, The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on that day of the Lord will be bitter the shouting of the warrior there. The day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people, and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust, and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. There's a final, really great reset coming, when the world will be switched off, and then on again, in a glorious thing called the new heaven earth, the resurrection of the dead and the re-establishment of a wonderful, wonderful earth system where spirit and physicality are merged together forever and God dwells at last, totally in the midst of his people, in the center of his creation. And I suspect that that day is almost upon us. But before this last and greatest reset occurs, there will be what I believe we should call a great revival. My eyes are straining for that, and I'm starting to see distinct signs of its imminence. So instead of fearing the so-called great reset, let's anticipate with excitement the soon coming great revival. The book of Revelation ends with these words. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to Truth Talks from Truth is the Word Ministry. If you'd like to share your views, read up on related topics, or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, truth is the word.